there is a, an old preacher's trick that when you have something in your throat, you don't sing with gusto, so you're ready to preach. I sang with gusto today, so I've got a cough drop and a glass of water. We'll see how it goes. You turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll begin with verse 18. Colossians 3, 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as if for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. Let me pray with me. Father, would you open our eyes to see and our hearts to understand and believe these truths that come from you in your word that are difficult. We open uh, our understanding to something fuller than what we've had previously. And will you strengthen us? Strengthen us to live a life that is glorifying to you in every way, that is full of your grace, your joy, and your peace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I asked Nathan to pray before I preached. Actually, not for this really, but makes for a little bit of a joke, because this is a difficult passage to preach on, and I needed all the prayer I could get. It's a veritable minefield. Not just in what it says, but what it doesn't say, and all the questions that it raises for many people in many people's mind. I suspect that if I uh, asked just a few questions of everyone in this room, that we would come back with some significant differences in answers Uh, from all of us as to what this means. I suspect that many of us have settled into passages like this as, to use an illustration from the passage, as a spouse oftentimes settles into a relationship with a hard-hearted spouse and just agrees to disagree, to live with one another and not really seek anything deeper. My goal for this morning is that we would not just approach this passage as one that we write off, as I've heard so many people express um, in those very words. Oh, we, we deal with that. We, we're okay with that. The rest of Scripture is fine, but we pat this part on its head. Because On the one hand, when we start to do that with even just a few passages in Scripture, what stops us from doing it with the rest of Scripture? 
What authority does Scripture have? God made some mistakes in some of it. How many mistakes did he really make? But on the other hand, if we read over this passage and we just say, well, I don't quite understand it, but I'm fine with it being there. I know God knows what it means and I don't really know, need to know. We, we come to a passage like this and we miss something of the, the power and the, the thrust of this passage and how it can impact our lives. Now, there are a number of things that this passage really doesn't address. It doesn't get into. And so we need to give a little, just a brief word on, on some of these things. And then be careful to not hear what I'm not saying. And don't apply more broadly principles than what you hear in the passage and what I'm preaching on here. But it's worth pointing out that this passage says nothing about the relative worth, value, ability between husband and wife, between man and woman, between married and single, between slave or master. We learn in Genesis that God created each of them, male and female, after his own image, gave them both responsibility to have dominion over the, uh, the, the, the living things over the earth itself. And then it says, chapter 1, verse 27, God created man, using man referring to humanity there in old language. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Equal in worth in value, regardless of Intelligence, ability, gender. Passage doesn't necessarily say that, but it's worth pointing out. Nor does this passage get into particular gender roles that go much beyond what you see in the passage. Particularly, who works outside the house? Who works inside the house? Who does work that makes income for the house? Who does work that is primarily caring for children or household Tasks. In fact, over and over again, we find in the Bible that those tasks, those, those jobs are of equal value. In fact, God lifts up the things that oftentimes the world calls menial or less worthwhile. And so we need to be careful about the language that we use when we come to a passage like this in a way that doesn't say that women can't, for example, work outside of the home, nor that demeans or devalues the valuable work that both fathers and mothers do in the home, husbands and wives do in the home in raising children. Sometimes we get caught up so much in the conversation of equality that we unintentionally demean and diminish the value of people who are doing work that is invaluable in God's economy. Whoever would be Greatest, Jesus tells his disciples, must become least among you. And so as Christians, we value the person cleaning up after the service as much as we value the musicians leading the service. I mentioned this earlier, but it's worth restating that this passage says nothing about marital status and the calling of some to be single throughout their life as the Apostle Paul was himself and commended that not just to himself, but to others. Nor is there a relative worth between being single or married. 
Apostle Peter was married. How he worked out that marriage with his travel and everything else, we really don't have much insight into. If you're divorced and been through that pain, the Lord offers the comforting and assuring words that God delights in restoring us, in valuing us not based on our spouse or even our success in relationships, but valuing us based on how he's made us, that he made us and called us, that we are intricately made and deeply valued and honored. I want to take a little bit of a turn on this passage and then come back to answer some of the more difficult questions around the subjects of submission, obedience, work ethic. It's worth pointing out even now at the beginning of the message that when we say those three things, which is what immediately catches our attention when we read a passage like this, perhaps even more emphatically, Paul is pointing husbands to not be harsh with their wives. Fathers to not provoke their children lest lest they become discouraged. Masters to treat their bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that we also have a master in heaven. This passage fits what is sometimes referred to as household tables. They weren't uncommon in the ancient world. So rules for the household. Think, well, why is slaves included in that? Well, in the ancient world, those who were particularly bond servants, they owed some type of debt to a person, and so they became a part of the household, living in the household, working, but they weren't free to go do their own thing. They oftentimes worked off their debt and were given their freedom or earned their freedom. Oftentimes, at the age of 30, these people were automatically released. Nonetheless, it was an oppressive system of sorts that we today would reject. And the passage is not saying slavery of this form should be practiced. And we'll address that question to some degree. Martin Luther called this the household table. It's kind of caught on and it continues to this day. The household table, that, as I said before, they weren't uncommon in those days. What was uncommon for a household table wasn't the rules to submit and obey and uh, work, uh, work uh, heartily, doing good work. What was unusual was the command on the opposite side of that, that those who had authority were to use it in not only a just way, but a kind way. We'll look at that and come back to it. Let's start with the question, though, of submission obedience, work ethic. There are two main themes that I want you to see that are, are, are flowing through this passage that are, are continued from the rest of the letter. The first of those themes is the concept of dwelling in the first place. Dwelling together, life together, this household concept. You remember we saw early in the chapter, chapter one, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ Jesus. And then we find that Christ takes up residence in our own lives as believers, both individually and as a community. And then God, or Paul instructs us to let the word of God 
or the word of Christ rather, that is his person and his words, all of scripture that point to him, dwell in us richly. This theme of dwelling and living together is throughout this book because Colossians is concerned that we know how to get along. And it's not a fake peace, but it's a real collaborative effort that the household would come together. Now, for us, our concept of household is much more around the immediate family. Even in this passage, you have probably adult children who are oftentimes living together with uh, older parents and, and these bond servants, multiple generation, the bond servants living all together. Even the animals were sometimes in the house. Our houses look different with our immediate family today. But one place of application for this is in the church body as a whole and how we interact and engage, especially in a culture where our immediate family, our blood family is oftentimes dispersed across country, across the country. And we're, we're, we're living here as a family, as, as a church, oftentimes in, in ways that the ancient world um, would, would have done with immediate family and, and, these, and these bond servants. So the, the concept of dwelling gives some sense of why Paul would all of a sudden enter this passage in here and talk about dwelling together and give these instructions, this household instruction. But the other theme that, 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 that goes throughout, not just this passage, but throughout the whole letter of Colossians is one of authority. What did Christ do when he went to the cross? Chapter 2, he broke. He broke the bonds, the shackles. He put to shame those authorities, those rulers, those powers that had been holding people in captivity. He broke their authority. He enters in with a greater authority. There's a freedom that comes from knowing Christ, and yet Paul wants us to know that there still, there still is this authority that exists in the household. You say, well, we've got past that. We've got past it. But have we? Is there any place in life where there's not some exercise of authority in your life? Now, there are places that are obvious, and our places of work is probably the most obvious. If you're in school, in school you have authority over you. The teachers tell you what to do. If you don't do it, you get a bad grade. If you're at work and the person tells you something to do, you might have some discussion over, well, I think we could do this better another way, or, or, or I don't think we should do this. But ultimately, that person who's hired you is the authority over you and has to say. Even in our homes and in our relationships there are oftentimes elements of authority though oftentimes these are peer relationships and so we need to be careful how we apply this in in those certain circumstances but even in the church you have relationships that are oftentimes mentoring relationships and so one person has some authority over the other one of the great um, blessings of those relationships is that Oftentimes the learning in a mentor relationship doesn't just go one way. In fact, a healthy mentoring relationship, you have learning that goes both ways. And yet one person oftentimes has more experience and is exercising a degree of authority. 
Authority goes along with uh, wisdom and maturity. That has also been a theme of this book. And maturity says that when we speak words of truth to others, remember verse 16 of chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Maturity says that we know what to teach, what to correct, when and how much a person can handle. Oftentimes, a sign of youth is not quite knowing what to do with that wisdom. You may have the answer, but when is it appropriate to say it? When is it appropriate to use it? The question of authority is one that we cannot get around in life. And in fact, we spend a lot of effort, a lot of effort trying to convince ourselves that we are actually not under authority when most of us are under some type of authority that we can't get out of. Most of us don't have immediate career mobility. We can't just quit today and have something that'll pay the bills tomorrow. Most of us have relationships that we have some type of accountability for, some people who are counting on us. Now, when you read this passage, I suspect that most of us Find ourselves in the positions of these people. So you identify with somebody in there. Who did you identify in there? There's basically six categories of people here. Wives, husbands, children, fathers or parents, bond servants, masters. One, two, three, four, five, six. Who do you first identify with? Wives, husbands, children, parents, bond servants, masters. Now you probably think, oh, everybody's thinking the same thing. But if I pulled the room again, I would say that probably every single one of these is represented in the room. Say, well, probably not bond servants. Well, if your primary place of difficulty and struggle in life is your boss, you probably identified with bond servants more than anything else here. If you're a parent of children, maybe you find yourself between being a parent and being a child of, a, of, of your own parents. But, but you have something there. Now, I want to suggest that about half of us probably identified with those being instructed to submit, obey, uh, uh, work heartily. And, and about half of us probably, probably split roughly along gender lines, but not entirely. Not entirely around, along gender lines. But if you identified with those who are in positions of power, in particular you, if you identified with those who are in particular positions of power in this authority structure here, I want to especially challenge you right now to consider who you're called to submit to. Who in God's economy, his household, has God called you to submit to? Because that's where Paul lands here with the end of this, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And the question of authority and submission or obedience or, or, or working heartily, has to be preceded with this knowledge that anyone who has been given authority is ultimately under authority. Anyone who has been given authority is ultimately under authority. 
And if you look around, and probably the people who have the biggest challenge with these verses are people who have seen authority abused, whether it's by a parent or a spouse or a boss or something else. And what's characteristic in almost every case of abused authority is that that authority fails to recognize that they themselves are under another authority. I've mentioned this recently. One of the most powerful statements, I believe, in all of the New Testament is when Jesus commends the faith of the centurion who recognizes that he is in a position of power. He's got a hundred soldiers. They can control a whole city and even a region by the word of his command. And yet Jesus commends his faith specifically because he recognizes, the centurion recognizes that he is not one just with authority, but that he is under authority. Now, if you are in any kind of position of authority, ask this question of yourself, who is in authority over me? Am I inviting those people to exercise this authority, this responsibility? Am I pushing them away? Am I putting up barriers? Am I hiding certain things from them in a way that doesn't trust them? Now, most of us do that in some form because most of us have seen the authority abused. And so it's a very careful process. If you're considering getting married, it's a very consider- careful process to consider who you're marrying because you are giving an element of authority over your life, both to the husband and to the wife. You look at Ephesians 5 and this, uh, this, this, this idea of submitting to one another is, is there as well. It's not just a one-way street there, although we'll come to what this particular passage means and how we apply it in marriage But when you put yourself in relationship, at work, in a church, you don't really have a choice if you're a kid and your parents, sorry. But when you put yourself in relationship, recognize that you're putting yourself in this position that where you're you're exercising and experiencing some form of authority. And part of Part of the challenge of living out life in this world as Christians is understanding that Jesus has claimed all authority in heaven and in earth. All authority has been given to him by God the Father. That when we come to Christ for salvation, we put ourselves under his authority. Now make one note here, a side note, that that authority is limited, not only because we're under the authority of Christ. The Apostle Peter says in the book of Acts, when challenged and told to conform and not to teach anymore in the temple, he speaks back to the authorities, the Jewish and the Roman authorities, and he says, am I to obey God or man? If those in authority are telling us to do things that are not, that is against the will of God, against the commandments of God, we are called first to obey God. This can apply in work, in life, in marriage, in all kinds of places, even children with their parents. Be careful, be careful as we warned last week that we aren't saying something that we're following God when we're really just following our own heart, your own heart, your own desires. Don't attribute to God something that's a projection of your desires. 
But if you know that God has commanded you to proclaim the gospel to others, an authority figure says you can't proclaim the gospel to others, you can go back to the apostle Peter and say, I must obey God first. Be wise, be careful, challenge authority appropriately. If somebody holds your employment over your head, it is a difficult decision whether you speak of the gospel in the workplace or not. There are usually ways to find outside of work to speak those things. You also want to be careful that you're not neglecting your work, justifying it by speaking of Christ, for we're hired to do that work, and that's part of the application of what it's called to work heartily, as if for the Lord, not for men. Because our work, our work in the marketplace, and by the way, that's probably the best place to apply this, our work in the marketplace today we should be applying this basic principle of bond servants to our place that, that we would work for our bosses, not in the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So whether you're cleaning bathrooms or designing buildings, or riveting airplanes, or called to teach the gospel. Whatever you do, whatever you do, that work, so long it is as, as it's, you know, it's not breaking God's commands, if you're a professional thief, you need to leave that occupation. As long as it's not breaking the God's commands, when you do that work, you are building God's kingdom on earth. You are partially fulfilling the prayer that you are praying, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <coughs> Just as a janitor who worked for NASA in the time of the Apollo space missions to the moon, and responded, what does he do for a living? He said he's helping to put a man on the moon. And whatever job you're doing, even if it seems menial, you are bringing God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. You are a part of God's kingdom building. You are working for the Lord, and it desires your full attention. And if you feel like, well, I'm not sharing the gospel enough at work, and so I'm not doing my job, here first that for you to do your job as you've been paid and called to do is your first call at, at the work. And when you do that, when you do that, oftentimes there are many opportunities that open up to speak of Christ. Remember Paul said, whatever you do in word or deed, literally in word or work, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And these two things oftentimes go together. Our deeds, our works, provide opportunities to share the word of the gospel. So that's the topic of submission. Let's look at the, uh, the other side of this and, and what Paul, well, well, let me just make sure we didn't go past that too fast. Submission, I hope that all of us have identified the difficulty it is to submit to other people and why we resist that so much. We feel like we're going to be free if we can break the bonds of any authority. 
But time and again, history has proved out that you can't do away with all authority. Efforts in the form of socialism and communism have failed in large part because when there's an effort to level the playing field, there's always a power grab and corruption to find influence. And it breaks down. Even in the old form of promoting anarchy or in today's libertarian type of philosophies, you reach a certain point and you realize that it's going to fail because people are selfish. Because people aren't just going to go along with it. The human nature resists those things. And apart from recognizing Christ's authority, we can never have true fairness in dealing justly. It just won't happen. But we can promote it as Christians to do that. Now, one of the questions, this is the second point, and it's going to be a little bit briefer. One of the questions that I always ask when I come to a passage is, is this. Where is the grace in this passage? I mean, so far, so far we've heard instructions to act well, well behaved if you're in positions of power, to recognize that authority is ubiquitous and that we resist it all the time. This question kind of sat with me for a while in this passage. I wasn't quite sure what to do with it. I mean, I could go back earlier in the book of Colossians and point out that the grace is in the work of Christ who has borne that, that penalty for our sin on the cross and freed us from the, the bond debt. Right? You can imagine it. It's the slave in this. The bond servant's debt that he owes it said earlier in the passage, earlier in the book, chapter 2, that Jesus took that debt that was holding us as servants, bond servants, slaves, and he nailed it to the cross saying, fully paid. And that is true and helpful and good. It's true and helpful and good. And we should never leave that truth. But as I was asking the question, where is the grace? This, this part of the passage emerged to me. And that is... If you find yourself in a position of authority and power, you are in the best position of everybody around here, whether it's a small or a big position, to extend grace to other people in your life. Grace is husbands loving their wives, not just living with them, loving their wives and not being harsh with them. Grace, his fathers, not just teaching their children what to do, but recognizing their voice of power and authority and potential damage and not provoking your children or exasperating them. Knowing that their gentle and youthful spirits can be easily discouraged, overwhelmed, withdrawing, from a place. Masters, knowing that you have extreme power and authority over a person's life, <coughs> you can squelch, squash a person's spirit in a moment's notice, and not just slave masters, but bosses, those with authority. Does somebody fail on your job site? Does somebody fail in your relationship? Does somebody fail in some, some way? What's your immediate response? Is it anger, outrage, yelling? I'll be the first to admit, or 
maybe not the first, that it is sometimes my response in the house and even in the church. But we're called to exercise this grace, not, not as the first one to exercise it, but because that grace has been exercised for us by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That grace has been extended to us by Christ being willing to what? Submit to the Father and go to the cross on our behalf. The leadership that we're called to as Christians is a servant leadership. In the passage in Ephesians 5 that unfolds this whole concept more clearly says just that. Let me read it for you. Wives, submit to your own husbands as in the Lord, as, as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let, us, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. One of the things I look for first when I meet a couple is how the wife is doing. One of the things you should look for first if you meet somebody who's a pastor especially, how's the wife doing? Now, this is a difficult question to ask because especially for pastors, it is a difficult life and the stresses that are on you to have a good-looking family and everything else can lead to hiding things, shutting things away, pretending things are fine. And so I'm not looking for you to be judge and jury over us or even one another. But if you are married, husbands, ask this question, am I loving my wife in this way that Christ loved his bride to present her beautiful and full. Now that love doesn't mean that you just acquiesce to everything. There are two ways to make that mistake. One is to just indulge a person and give them whatever they, uh, they, they want. And the other is to neglect and act selfishly with a person. We can make a mistake on either, either side of that of that error. But even still, the command here and the instruction, the illustration that Paul gives with Christ and his church is so revealing. 
not just for husbands with wives, but for everybody who's in a position of authority, that you have been entrusted with that authority. Now the question sometimes is asked, Well, let me say one more thing before we go there. I want to read just two quotes that were particularly convicting for me that came from a pastor in London, or a pastor in England uh, in his commentary uh, named R.C. Lucas. And he said this to to husbands, and then he also made an interesting comment to, uh, to to parents. A wife can disappoint a man's hopes and ambitions, failing to live up to his unrealistic ideals for her, which are often an unconscious compensation for his own inadequacies. In the same spirit, he speaks about parents. I seem to have missed the beginning of the comment, but he says, children oftentimes become shy and lacking in normal self-confidence. It's no use... Uh, It is no use such a father bemoaning the inability of his children to be strong and self-reliant like himself since he has used his strength to crush and undermine them. Now this is dangerous ground because children oftentimes choose to do their own thing despite our best efforts and intentions. I don't read these things to guilt trip any parents or husbands, but they are still revealing as to some of our own motivations that sometimes play out in our lives and in the lives of others in ways that we quite, we don't even uh, intend and are, are, are oftentimes largely unaware of those things. So let me close out this, this whole thing with a word of, of encouragement and why authority even matters, why Paul would even include this in here. One of the questions that's going to come up anytime you read this passage is, is this passage somehow justifying the practice of bond servanthood? Not chattel slavery per se, but bond servanthood, you can't justify it completely by saying it was a different form of, of slavery. It was still owning another person. And we recognize that that is wrong, and the, and the scriptures speak of buying and selling another person in the list of sins as being a wrong thing to do. So why, why even include this in here? Well, part of the reason is that Paul is, is saying that these authority structures, imperfect as they are, have been ordained by God to be used by God. Not that they're perfect, not that they aren't abusive, In fact, why does Paul say in Romans 13 that we should, rather than turn, sorry, let me me read the passage for you here. In Romans 13, that we should uh, follow, turn to it here, sorry. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers rulers are not a terror to good conduct, 
but to bad. And the Apostle Peter in his, one of his letters says, honor the emperor. And so Paul is writing to a church that is in the city of Rome who are living under two of the greatest tyrants in Roman history, Tiberius and then Nero, with these instructions that they should honor the emperor. Why does he do that? Well, we should recognize that the, the form of authority and power that, that God was calling Christians to exercise in those places was not to overthrow the empire militarily, but to subvert the empire through faithful living and recognizing that there are places where they were to resist the empire when they told them that they couldn't obey God. But by and large, they were called to honor the emperor, follow the authorities. And a similar thing can be said, said about uh, the, the form of bond servanthood. Paul says, if, if you can avail yourself of freedom, by all means do it. But the form first to influence another person is to do that work with a, a, a hearty willingness as if you were doing it for the Lord. And so in neither of those cases were those systems justified or God's chosen system. Which brings us to this, this last question. Well, if we write off the section about bond servants and them having to obey their earthly masters, what do we do with parents? Should we not just say that this was an accommodation of a societal norm where husbands were the head and we've moved past that and husbands are no longer head of the, the house? And to understand that, we have to understand something of what Christ is to the church. And this has already been brought up in Colossians chapter 1 in this letter, that Christ is the head of the body. And what Paul's doing here is drawing on another cultural concept. In that time, it was basically the head of the household. So this group of people were living in the house, and one person was the head of the, house, the household. It was the oldest male typically, but it also could be a female. It seems Lydia, who made, uh, was a businesswoman in Ephesus and made purple fabric, probably for the upper class, was the head of her household. For it says when she became a believer, her whole household was baptized, her children. She didn't have somebody else's head of the household. Maybe she was married and her husband didn't believe. And even still, she would have been something of a representative head of household as the Christian called to continue in marriage as long as her husband was married was willing to remain married to this unbelieving uh, believing person. The concept of the head of the household is one that God, that Paul uses over and over for us to understand our relationship to Christ. One of my professors in seminary would draw this circle. It was a very simple illustration. I'd draw this circle on the board. He drew it probably dozens, if not hundreds of times throughout seminary. A circle on the board with a bunch of X's in it to represent people. And at the top of the circle, he would draw a cross on the circle to represent Christ in showing us how Christ is the head of his household, his body, the church. And all of these people were not just under his authority, but under his responsibility. He was accountable for their well-being. And the illustration of this that comes from Scripture that is the most Obvious and helpful is to look back at the story of King David before he was king, when he was still young, and the nation of Israel was under the kingship of Saul, and they were facing the, the 
feared, dreaded Philistines. And they had a giant named Goliath. And this giant was calling on the nation of Israel to send out a representative head to fight a battle for them. And whoever won between those two people, everything else, everything that they won was applied to everybody else in the circle, everybody else in the camp. And Saul said, I don't want to do that. Not in so many words, but he resisted. He wasn't willing to go up against Goliath. And David came up and he said, I will fight the giant. And acted as, as a representative head. And what, what happened? All those who lost were, became slaves. All those on the winning side were freed. And for Christ to be the representative head is to exercise not just a servant leadership, but a representative leadership on behalf of the people. How the family goes is measured first on that head of the household. Or the head of the household is held accountable for the whole family. Now again, people can leave the covenant, leave the family. They go out. The story of the prodigal son is the perfect example of that. Child comes, the son comes to the father, says, Give me my inheritance. I wish it was like you were dead. Give me my inheritance. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. He's outside of the covenant family. But what does that representative head do when the son comes back empty handed, having squandered everything in life? The representative head welcomes him back into the family, into the circle. Now, who gets upset about that? The older brother who has to share some of his, his held-on-to inheritance now with that younger brother who's back. But who delights? It's the Father representing Jesus. And Jesus is that authority, that one who is loving his family that way, that says, come back. I will share all that I have with you. The form of authority and leadership is not just a servant leadership. It's a representative leadership that is seeking the safety, protection, building up, growing, and maturity of everyone under that authority. We can apply that not only in our families, but in our workplaces and even in our mentoring relationships as a church and our exercise of authority as elders in the church and as wise and mature women who are mentoring other women in the church. All kinds of places we can apply this, this form of representative leadership because Christ is our representative head and he's won that victory for us. Now, as I said before, I've, there's only so much scope that I can cover in this whole thing, but I hope, I hope that you come to this passage and you see this representative headship and this form of leadership, representative and servant leadership, and even the existence of authority and, and a call to submit, to obey, and work hardly for something in a new and redeemed light. We don't feel like we have to apologize for it or write it off or much less live with it like a hard-hearted spouse. But see the deep love of God the Father and God the Son pouring out into our lives as one who's loved his bride this way, his children this way, and those who are working in his kingdom this way. Let's pray.
Father, will you forgive us for the many ways that we have abused your authority, the authority you've entrusted to us? Will you heal so many of us who have experienced abuse of authority, abuse of power, even physical, verbal, and even sexual abuse? You help us to live into these truths, holding our leaders to an accountability, not just laying down, but to know your word and your call that we would know when to follow and when to challenge. And will you strengthen our families, our households, us as a church, as a household of God, to live into these truths more and more every day. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' powerful name, who bled and died for us, and who rose and who reigns over us with a good, powerful authority. We ask this in his name. Amen.